Chapter Seven of the Border Legion by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After dark, Kells had his men build a fire before the open side of the cabin. He lay propped up on blankets and his saddle, while the others lounged or sat in a half circle in the light facing him. Joan drew her blanket into a corner where the shadows were thick and she could see without being seen. She wondered how she would ever sleep near all these wild men, if she could ever sleep again. Yet she seemed more curious and wakeful than frightened. She had no way to explain it, but she felt the fact that her presence in the camp had a subtle influence, at once restraining and exciting. So she looked out upon the scene with wide-open eyes and she received more strongly than ever an impression of wildness. Even the campfire seemed to burn wildly. It did not glow and sputter and pale and brighten and sing like an honest campfire. It blazed in red, fierce, hurried flames, wild to consume the logs. It cast a baleful and sinister color upon the hard faces there. Then the blackness of the enveloping night was pitchy, without any bold outline of canyon wall or companionship of stars. The coyotes were out in force, and from all around came their wild, sharp barks. The wind rose and mourned weirdly through the balsams. But it was in the men that Joan felt mostly that element of wildness. Kells lay with his ghastly face clear in the play of the moving flare of light. It was an intelligent, keen, strong face, but evil. Evil power stood out in the lines, in the strange eyes, stranger than ever, now in shadow, and it seemed once more the face of an alert, listening, implacable man, with wild projects in mind, driving him to the doom he meant for others. Pierce's red face shone redder in that ruddy light. It was hard, lean, almost fleshless, a red mask stretched over a grinning skull. The one they called Frenchy was little, dark, small-featured, with piercing, gimlet-like eyes, and a mouth ready to gush forth hate and violence. The next two were not particularly individualized by any striking aspect, merely looking border ruffians after the type of Bill and Holloway. But Golden, who sat at the end of the half-circle, was an object that Joan could scarcely bring her gaze to study. Somehow her first glance at him put into her mind a strange idea, that she was a woman, and therefore, of all creatures or things in the world, the farthest removed from him. She looked away and found her gaze returning, fascinated, as if she were a bird and he a snake. The man was of huge frame, a giant whose every move suggested the acme of physical power. He was an animal, a gorilla, with a shock of light instead of black hair, of pale instead of black skin. His features might have been hewn and hammered out with coarse, dull, broken chisels. And upon his face, in the lines and cords, in the huge caverns where his eyes hid, and in the huge gash that held strong white fangs, had been stamped by nature and by life a terrible ferocity. Here was a man 
or a monster, in whose presence Joan felt she would rather be dead. He did not smoke. He did not indulge in the coarse, good-natured raillery. He sat there like a huge engine of destruction that needed no rest, but was forced to rest because of weaker attachments. On the other hand, he was not sullen or brooding. It was that he did not seem to think. Kells had been rapidly gaining strength since the extraction of the bullet, and it was evident that his interest was growing proportionately. He asked questions and received most of his replies from Red Pierce. Joan did not listen attentively at first, but presently she regretted that she had not. She gathered that Kells's fame as the master bandit of the whole gold region of Idaho, Nevada, and northeastern California was a fame that he loved as much as the goal he stole. Joan sensed, through these replies of these men and their attitude toward Kells, that his power was supreme. He ruled the robbers and ruffians of his bands, and evidently they were scattered from Bannock to Lewiston and all along the border. He had power, likewise, over the border hawks not directly under his leadership. During the weeks of his enforced stay in the canyon, there had been a cessation of operations, the nature of which Joan merely guessed, and a gradual accumulation of idle wailing men in the main camp. Also she gathered, but vaguely, that though Kells had supreme power, the organization he desired was yet far from being consummated. He showed thoughtfulness and irritation by turns, and it was the subject of gold that drew his intensest interest. "'Reckon you'd figure right, Jack,' said Red Pierce, and paused as if before a long talk while he refilled his pipe. "'Sooner or later there'll be the biggest gold strike ever made in the West. Wagon trains are met every day, coming from across Salt Lake. Prospectors are working in hordes down from Bannock. All the gulches and valleys in the Bear Mountains have their camps, surface gold everywhere and easy to get where there's water. But there's digging all over. No big strike yet. It's bound to come sooner or later. And then, when the news hits the main traveled roads and reaches back into the mountains, there's going to be a rush that'll make 49 and 51 look sick. What do you say, Bate? Sure will, replied a grizzled individual whom Kells had called Bate Wood. He was not so young as his companions, more sober, less wild, and slower of speech. I saw both forty-nine and fifty-one. Them was days. But I'm agreeing with Red. There sure will be hell on this Idaho border sooner or later. I've been a prospector, though I never hankered after the hard work of digging gold. Gold is hard to dig, easy to lose, and easy to get from some other fellow. I see the signs of a coming strike somewhere in this region. Maybe it's on now. There's thousands of prospectors in twos and threes and groups out in the hills all over. They ain't going to tell when they do make a strike, but gold must be brought out. And gold is heavy. It ain't easy to hide. That's how strikes are discovered. I sure reckon that this year will beat forty-nine and fifty-one. And for two reasons. There's a steady stream of broken and disappointed gold seekers back trailing from California. There's a bigger stream of hopeful and crazy fortune hunters 
traveling in from the east. Then there's the women and the gamblers and such that hang on. And last, the men that the war is driving out here. Whenever and wherever these streams meet, if there is a big gold strike, there'll be the hellish time the world ever saw. Boys, said Kells, with a ring in his weak voice, it'll be a harvest for my border legion. For what? queried Batewood curiously. All the others, except Golden, turned inquiring and interested faces toward the bandit. The Border Legion, replied Kells. And what's that? asked Red Pierce bluntly. Well, if the time's ripe for the great gold fever you say is coming, then it's ripe for the greatest band ever organized. I'll organize. I'll call it the Border Legion. Count me in his right hand, pard, said Red with enthusiasm. And sure me, boss, added Batewood. The idea was received vociferously, at which demonstration the giant Golden raised his massive head and asked, or rather growled, in a heavy voice what the fuss was about. His query, his roused presence, seemed to act upon the others, even Kells, with a strange, disquieting, or halting force, as if here was a character or an obstacle to be considered. After a moment of silence, Red Pierce explained the project. Huh, nothing new in that, replied Golden. I belonged to one once. It was in Algiers. They called it the Royal Legion. Algiers? What's that? asked Batewood. Africa, replied Golden. Say, Gull, you've been around some, said Red Pierce, admiringly. What was the Royal Legion? Nothing but a lot of devils from all over. The border there was the last place. Every criminal was safe from pursuit. What'd you do? Fought among ourselves. Wasn't many in the Legion when I left. Sure, that ain't strange, exclaimed Woods significantly. But his inference was lost upon Golden. I won't allow any fighting in my Legion, said Kells coolly. I'll pick this band myself. That's the secret, rejoined Wood. The right fellows. I've been in all kinds of bands. Why, I even was a vigilante in 51. That elicited a laugh from his fellows, except the wooden-faced Golden. How many do we want? asked Red Pierce. The number doesn't matter, but they must be men I can trust and control. Them as lieutenants, I'll need a few young fellows like you, Red. Nervy, daring, cool, quick of wits. Red Pierce enjoyed the praise bestowed upon him and gave his shoulders a swagger. Speaking of that, boss, he said, reminds me of a chap who rode into Cabin Gulch a few weeks ago. Braced right into Beard's place, where we were all playing faro, and he asked for Jack Kells. Right off, we all thought he was a guy who had a grievance, and some of us was for plugging him. But I kind of liked him, and I cooled the gang down. Glad I did that. He wasn't wanting to throw a gun. His intentions were friendly. Of course, I didn't show curious about who or what he was. Reckon he was a young fellow who had gone bad sudden-like and was hunting friends. And I'm here to say, boss, that he was wild. What's his name? asked Kells. Jim Cleve, he said, replied Pierce. Joan Randall, hidden back in the shadows, forgotten or ignored by this bandit group, heard the name Jim Cleve with pain and fear, but not amaze. From the moment Pierce began his speech, she had been prepared 
for the revelation of her runaway lover's name. She trembled and grew a little sick. Jim had made no idle threat. What she would have given to live over again, the moment that had alienated him. Jim cleaved, mused Kells. Never heard of him, and I never forget a name or a face. What's he like? Clean, rangy chap, big, but not too big, replied Pierce. All muscle, no more than twenty-three. Hard rider, hard fighter, hard gambler and drinker, reckless as hell. If only you can steady him, boss. Ask Bates what he thinks. Well, exclaimed Kells in surprise, strangers are everyday occurrences on this border. But I never knew one to impress you fellows as this Cleve. Bate, what do you say? What's this Cleve done? You're an old head. Talk sense now. Done, echoed Wood, scratching his grizzled head. What in the hell ain't he done? He rode in brazener than any fella that ever stacked up against this outfit. And straight off he wins the outfit. I don't know how he done it. Maybe it was because, you seen, he didn't care for anything or anybody on earth. He stirred us up. He won all the money we had in camp, broke most of us, and give it all back. He drank more than the whole outfit, yet didn't get drunk. He threw his gun on Beatty Jones for cheatin', and then on Beatty's pard, Chick Williams. Didn't shoot to kill, just winged him. But say, he's the quickest and smoothest hand to throw a gun that ever hit this border. Don't overlook that, Kells. This Jim Cleaves, a great youngster, going bad quick. And I'm here to add that he'll take some company along. Bate, you forgot to tell how he handled loose, said Red Pierce. You was there, I wasn't. Tell Kells that. Loose, I know the man. Go ahead, Bate, responded Kells. Maybe it ain't any recommendation for said Jim Cleave, replied Wood, though it did sort of warm me to him. Boss, of course. You recollect that little Brander girl over at Bear Lake Village? She's old Brander's girl, worked in a store there. I've seen you talk sweet to her myself. Well, it seems the old man and some of his boys took to prospecting and fetched the girl along. That's how I understood it. Luce came bracing in over Cabin Gulch one day. As usual, he was drinking and playing. But young Cleve wasn't doing neither. He had a strange, moody spell that day, as I recollect. Luce sprung a job on us. We never worked with him or his outfit, but maybe you can't tell what'd come off if it hadn't been for Cleve. Luce had a job put up to ride down where old Brander was washing for gold and take what he had and the girl. Fact was the gold was only incidental. When somebody cornered Luce, he couldn't swear that there was gold worth going after. And about then Jim Cleve woke up. He cussed Luce something fearful. And when Luce went for his gun, natural-like, why this Jim Cleve took it away from him. And then he jumped Luce. He knocked and threw him around and near beat him to death before we could interfere. Luce was sure near dead, all battered up, broken bones, and what all, I can't say. We put him to bed and he's there yet and he'll never be the same man he was. A significant silence fell upon the group at the conclusion of Wood's narrative. Woods had liked the telling, and it made his listeners thoughtful. All at once the pale face of Kells turned slightly towards Golden. 
Golden, did you hear that? asked Kells. Yes, replied the man. What do you think about this Jim Cleve and the job he prevented? Never saw Cleve. I'll look him up when we get back to camp. Then I'll go after the Brander girl. How strange his brutal assurance marked the line between him and his companions. There was something wrong, something perverse in this Golden. Had Kells meant to bring that point out, or to get an impression of Cleve? Joan could not decide. She divined that there was antagonism between Golden and all the others. And there was something else, vague and intangible, that might have been fear. Apparently Golden was a criminal for the sake of crime. Joan regarded him with a growing terror, augmented the more because he alone kept eyes upon the corner where she was hidden. And she felt that compared with him, the others, even Kells, of whose cold villainy she was assured, were but insignificant men of evil. She covered her head with a blanket to shut out the sight of that shaggy, massive head and the great dark caves of eyes. Thereupon Joan did not see or hear any more of the bandits. Evidently the conversation died down, or she, in the absorption of new thoughts, no longer heard. She relaxed, and suddenly seemed to quiver all over, with the name she whispered to herself. Jim, Jim, oh, Jim! And the last whisper was an inward sob. What he had done was terrible. It tortured her. She had not believed it in him. Yet now she thought how like him. All for her. In despair and spite, he had ruined himself. He would be killed out there in some drunken brawl, or still worse, he would become a member of this bandit crew and drift in the crime. That was a great blow to Joan. That the curse should put upon him. How silly, false, and vain had been her coquetry, her indifference. She loved Jim Cleve. She had not known that when she started out to trail him, to fetch him back. But she knew it now. She ought to have known before. The situation she had foreseen loomed dark and monstrous and terrible in prospect. Just to think of it made her body creep and shudder with cold terror. Yet there was that strange, inward, thrilling burn round her heart. Somewhere, and soon, she was coming face to face with this changed Jim Cleve, this boy who had become a reckless devil. What would he do? What could she do? Might he not despise her, scorn her, curse her, taking her at Kell's words, the wife of a bandit? But no, he would divine the truth in the flash of an eye. And then... She could not think what might happen, but it must mean blood-death. If he escaped Kells's, how could he ever escape this golden, this huge vulture of prey? Still, with the horror thick upon her, Joan could not wholly give up. The moment Jim Cleve's name and his ruin burst upon her ears in the gossip of these bandits, she had become another girl, a girl wholly become a woman and one with a driving passion, to save if it cost her life. She lost her fear of Kells, of the others, of all except Golden. He was not human, and instinctively she knew she could do nothing with him. She might influence the others, but never Golden. The torment in her brain eased in, and gradually she quieted down, with only a pang and a weight in her breast. 
The past seemed far away. The present was nothing. Only the future that contained Jim Cleve mattered to her. She would not have left the clutches of Kells if at that moment she could have walked forth free and safe. She was going on to Cabin Gulch. And that thought was the last one in her weary mind as she dropped to sleep. End of chapter 7